This is Christy Drutman, and you are listening to Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about the importance of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. I'm currently recording this podcast on Muncie Lenape land. This is your daily reminder that we are all living on stolen land. Welcome back for another episode of Brown Girl Green. I'm so happy to have you all here, especially when we are talking about the environment and Earth Month. So today we are going to be talking about this very difficult and serious issue, which is talking about the connections between the prison industrial complex and environmental justice. We are specifically going to be centered on detention centers and folks who are impacted by ICE and immigrant justice issues. The reason why I really wanted to talk about this issue is because we don't really think about people who are detained or people who are put in jails and prisons as part of the conversation when it comes to climate change, but that's just not the reality. In fact, many of these people who are detained and separate from their families, uh, et cetera, et cetera, are typically put in some of the most vulnerable positions when it comes to environmental issues, whether it be inside of the actual detention centers or facilities they're in where they're exposed to toxic chemicals or mold or uh, dirty air, uh, unhealthy food and water, et cetera. Uh, or the outside, the fact that they are in a confined space and when it comes to floods or hurricanes or storms uh, and even fires as, we, as we've seen recently with you know California wildfires, who are the people that are put to work when it comes to dealing with those crises? It is people that are in the system uh, who are imprisoned and are pushed into some of the most vulnerable places when it comes to a situation where they're they're put in danger, they're put in proximity to a natural disaster, uh, and so on and so forth. And so when I'm thinking about environmental justice, I think that this is a population of people that we can't forget, and especially here in the U.S., when it comes to the issues that folks who are on undocumented face uh, to even be able to justify receiving proper education and human rights and access to the same resources as everyone else in this country, the fact that many of them are detained and put into um, these detention centers is something that I don't think gets covered often enough. Um, I remember uh, like maybe a year or two ago, you know, there was a lot of press because they saw that there was children in these detention centers, you know, freezing and experiencing so many health impacts but it was like okay I that was very heartbreaking and painful but it's like they're not the only ones that are facing this full families and grown adults and people that don't deserve to be in those facilities have to struggle through these horrible living conditions and so I wanted to invite some folks who you're going to meet in this episode who are going to talk about the connections between detention centers, immigrant justice, and climate justice because I think it's an intersection that's not explored enough and I really want to talk about it on my show. And this is your also reminder to think about supporting um, the Brown Girl Green Show by subscribing to the podcast, subscribing to us on YouTube, 
following us, Brown Girl Green, on social media so we can keep bringing in amazing guests, people on the front lines who are doing incredible work advocating for issues in their communities and yeah to keep the program going so visit our website browngirlgreen.com support follow subscribe and yeah check it out i'm excited for you to listen to this week's episode i'm so excited today that we have amanda diaz from freedom for immigrants talking with us today about their amazing work and so amanda i would love if you could introduce yourself and more about the work that you do yeah, thank you so much, Christy. It's such an honor to be on your show. Um, my name is Amanda Diaz. I use she, her pronouns. I'm based in Los Angeles, which is unceded Tongva land. And I'm the national hotline manager with Freedom for Immigrants. Um, we are an abolitionist organization that believes that prisons and jails should not exist um, and that those are not the solutions to our, our issues like immigration, detention, and influx of, of people coming into the country. And we um, yeah, do a variety of different advocacy work to try to close down facilities across the country and liberate our communities. Thank you so much. Uh, and I wanted to just start off by you know, setting the context of this conversation. Uh, could you explain to us more about the relationship um, of this intersection between environmental injustice, um, folks who get detained by, you know, the prison industrial complex, and, and immigrant justice. I know there's a, multi a multiplicity of intersections there, but would love if you could speak on where do you see the intersections of those three different issues? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think oftentimes we think about our movements really separately, like Immigrant justice and environmental justice are, are separate entities, but in reality, they are so, so interconnected and so intersectional. Um, there are a few. I feel like I can talk so much about all the intersections, but I think the first is, is we have a common enemy, right? Our common enemy is capitalism. The same companies that are investing in private prisons that detain and deport our family members are the same big companies that are investing in big oil and fossil fuels that just exploit both people and the planet for profit. Um, and obviously, as we know, um, the United States is a settler, settler society that was founded on white supremacy and colonial like expansionism and exploitation. So as a result of US imperialism, the extraction of like natural resources across the country and across the, the world, specifically in the global south, have forced people to leave their homelands and have also made them their homelands just unsafe and unlivable. So a few examples I think that really connect our work are um, things like NAFTA and CAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement and the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which just devastated uh, farmland and contributed to deforestation. And people were pushed out of their small farms, which then forced them to migrate um, to support and feed their families. Um, I think another one is after NAFTA, a lot of manufacturing companies and factories were built on the U.S.-Mexico border, like maquiladora factories, which have just increased um, air pollution throughout Mexico and particularly in other urban areas that have also forced people up north. Um, in addition to that, like loss of agricultural production in Honduras and Central America as a result of like droughts and floods have also severely impacted both the economy and just like individuals livelihood, which really pushed them again uh, to migrate into the United States, uh, which has 
been the cause of most of the devastation in, in our communities. So all over the world, and especially in the global south, we very clearly see the climate crisis that is devastating so many people's lives. And it's really important for us to like center the, who is responsible for this, right? It's colonialism, it's capitalism, it's expansionism. And I think one other thing that I've noticed like in our movements is how often both of our movements use rhetoric to blame individuals, right? Like, why aren't you recycling? Why aren't you composting? Why aren't you coming in legally? Why aren't you just waiting in line? When actively, it's the effects of colonialism and imperialism that are the root of these causes. So basically, in a nutshell, I think environmental justice and immigrant justice are the same and that we need both to save the planet and to also liberate our communities in order to, to live fulfilling lives. So, yeah. Thank you. And I, I really love what you said about like the same rhetoric that's used to shame people on an individual level um, is just, a, you know, a symptom of a bigger system that blames and, and scapegoats certain communities as part of the reason why these issues are happening. And I think definitely um, we're seeing the emergence of that kind of rhetoric, um, even from eco-fascists, people who claim that, um, you know, illegal immigrants are going to be a part of the issue when it comes to resource allocation due to climate change. And it's like, who's going to be impacted the worst by that? People who are undocumented, people who are viewed as not allowed to be in this country, um, they're going to be the ones that are probably targeted and are currently being targeted as part of the problem for damaging the economy, um, for taking resources. So I could see that easily being expanded to, you know, environmental issues and climate change um, on who are the haves and the have nots in this conversation. So I think it's really important that we start identifying that um, you know, people who are detained are frontline communities also. And that's kind of the point of this conversation is that, you know, many people who are detained are viewed as, you know, discarded in this society today. And I think it's one of those things where there's all these labels um, and blanketed statements that paint, a, paint this broad stroke of, um, you know, they deserve it. You know, they didn't work hard enough. X, Y, and Z reason. They deserve to be in those conditions. And so today I really want to unpack, you know, and unlearn that kind of rhetoric. And so that's why I'm really excited to have you here because I think that that kind of narrative is so dangerous and it's going to continue to be dangerous when we're fighting for things like climate justice. Um, so yeah, I re I'm really so excited for this conversation. So, you know, a lot of your work is centered around supporting immigrants held in ICE detention centers. So I want to know, can you explain more about some of the nuanced experiences that immigrants have to face when they do get detained and are put in those kind of conditions? Absolutely. Um, so I think it's important to start by saying that immigration detention is a deeply, deeply traumatizing and abusive experience for pretty much every individual that, that enters that system. And the United States immigration system has been purposefully designed really to be unjust and unfair and complex and extremely confusing to navigate. So um, within the immigration system and its immigration laws, we've like known through history that they're deeply steeped in racism, xenophobia, again, settler colonialism, imperialism. And we can very see that starkly being translated back into immigration detention and how it operates. And so people who are detained inside of these facilities um, are subject to so much abuse. I mean, everything from 
physical abuse to sexual abuse to just ridiculously high commissary prices to egregious medical neglect um, to racist comments specifically anti-black racism homophobic abuse i mean like really it's like across the board horrible horrible egregious experiences and we really see that it's a, a symptom across the country it's rampant in every facility there's no like perfect facility or a more humane facility like they're all egregious and immigration detention is also inherently isolating experience they're away from their families they have to pay ridiculous uh, fees to even contact their families through phone there's use of of solitary confinement and so many people have even compared their time in detention to psychological torture And unlike the criminal detention system or the criminalizing system like jails and prisons, people in ICE detention are actually not um, appointed, a court-appointed attorney, um, if they can't afford one, which leads to even lesser successful cases of asylum processes or other sort of immigration proceedings, which then leads to many people to self-deport because they're just like, I can't even handle these conditions anymore. I'd rather be deported than to suffer this ridiculous abuse. So in a nutshell, this is really by design and has been intended to function this way and has been since the very beginning of immigration detention, since the 1980s when it first expanded and when we saw sort of the mass incarceration complex in the country expand. So yeah, systemic human rights abuses are just really inseparable from detention. These abuses are like intentionally built into the system to dehumanize people um, and it's by design. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's purposely to, yeah, psychologically torture people and to put them in conditions that, you know, make them internalize, you know, those feelings of dehumanizing themselves where they're like, well, if I'm this discarded, then yeah, I do deserve this treatment. There's, there's not better conditions that do exist for me. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's terrible and that's absolutely horrible. And you know, I think when we're talking about um, the conditions that they face and accepting poor treatment, I think this comes back to the environmental justice question of, you know, how do you feel that it makes them more vulnerable to environmental and health impacts? I know that, you know, we're talking about psychological impacts, but like actual like health impacts. Um, Could you speak a bit more to that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, as we've talked, like, white supremacy and just systems of detention and incarceration have really just been completely utter disregarding of the lives and safety of black and brown and indigenous communities like all across our history in the United States. But there are definitely a lot of environmental abuses that that show up um, in these systems. There's like a few that I'll sort of go through because there's just so many abuses, but the first that I can think of are are just like the physicality of where these facilities are located. Many of them are actually located on toxic sites or like waste sites. So one study in 2018 from Earth Justice identified at least six youth facilities in the United States that were home to just like extremely high levels of toxins and chemical waste. So the Homestead Child Detention Center in Homestead, Florida, for example, was located right next to a toxic waste site and right next to a military base, which severely increased noise pollution and just like health effects for children in like crucial developmental stages of their life 
let alone adding to the like separation of their parents. Um, also, facilities are located in environmentally like impacted places, like where air and water pollution are really rampant. So, for example, the Imperial Regional Detention Center is located in Imperial County in California, which suffers from one of the worst air pollution in the country. People in the valley, in the Imperial Valley, for example, are exposed to um, pollution from like vehicle transportation to toxic agricultural emissions from pesticides to like fields that that are being burned to just huge amounts of dust. Um, and people detained are just uniquely placed there to breathe it all in and caged in these facilities that have little to no air filtration. Um, so it's just another way that immigrants in detention are just forced to be experiencing this this environmental abuse, really. And I think since the pandemic as well, um, for the past couple of years now, I guess, there's also been this increase in using toxic chemical sprays inside of facilities. And so these chemicals, for example, that are supposed to be used at like industry grade levels of disinfecting agents that are super damaging to humans are being used inside of these facilities, again, in cages, enclosed in an area with no ventilation. These chemicals are known as QACs, and I'm going to like totally butcher the name, but it's like quaternary ammonium compounds or something like that. I can fact check that for you, but these, yeah, QAC agents are just have alarming long-term health effects, including reproductive health, infertility, um, cellular, cellular process issues, um, and really people who are exposed to these toxic chemicals have reported coughing, bleeding, just like painful, like chest pain, um, to headaches, to just like long-term and other really worrying symptoms. So yeah, these are just really, really long-term effects that individuals inside of these facilities are being experienced as a result of these horrible atrocities. Do you, do you know why they use those chemicals? Yeah, this is what's interesting. They're used to, ICE sort of claims that it's their method for protecting against COVID-19. Um, but what's very important, right, in this conversation is like the only way to actually protect people from COVID is to release them, is to release them into their communities, into their safe homes, instead of literally caging people inside of these facilities where these viruses can spread like instantly. So that's sort of ICE's reason for, for spraying it. And they're spraying on it on like human beings on surfaces, like again in enclosed areas. So it's it's just not effective. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's terrible. And I'm sure that's gone even worse, like given the pandemic too. Um, and, and I think like you know something that I, I think we I talked about with your team in the pre-interview is also in addition to those chemicals, um, a lot of the people that are detained are also exposed to like mold and just like, you know, indoor air pollution and, um, you know, just like unbreathable air because they're in such tight conditions. Um, so I think, you know, adding on to that, it's like they're already being put in a very like vulnerable health position. So then to be exposed to these chemicals is going to, you know, exacerbate those those issues even worse. So, um, yeah. And, you know, I wanted to know if you could zero in on, you know, a case that you all are specifically campaigning around and focused on, which is the Glades County Detention Center. And, um, you know, if you could just explain to the audience, like what is happening to the folks that are being imprisoned there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Glades County Detention Center, or like I'll just call it Glades because it's like always a mouthful, um, is a detention center that's located in rural Florida and has um, one of the facilities that has a huge and long history of abuse, specifically extremely racist and anti-black abuse to physical violence to sexual abuse. And it's just one of the prime examples of the use of toxic chemical sprays like we just talked about. Um, ICE and local officials inside of Glades have been endangering everybody inside of this facility um, using these highly toxic chemical sprays. They like use them as like backpack sprayers and they're um, like spraying them in the air on um, tabletops, like on commonly touched surfaces. And also obviously like that effect gets on human beings, which is extremely contrary to both the EPA um, and the manufacturing instructions that are on the label. Um, a recent investigation from a scientific magazine called Scientific American uncovered internal emails um, provided by the Glades staff that were diluting the chemicals in highly reduced levels specific specified by the EPA. So in one instance at Glades, um, an official wrote um, at the Glades County Sheriff's Office that the disinfectant was so thick that it was clogging up the backpack sprayer and then directed officials to continue to spray it um, 64 times the recommended strength. Um, and so people were exposed to this toxic spray and again, experienced just like coughing, bleeding, painful breathing, rashes, I mean, headaches, like you name it, like all really worrying symptoms. And people were experiencing these symptoms were denied, in addition to that, were denied proper medical treatment, which is something that we see very, very common in, in immigration detention. And medical staff just kind of shrug it off and were just like, oh, these symptoms are, you know, because you have a cold or because you have allergies um, and just pretending to be so unaware of the very like intentional chemical situation that was coming together. Wow. And and, you know, I know that you all work and support folks who are detained all across the country. Is this situation unique to Glades or is this happening in other places around America right now? Yeah, definitely. This is much bigger than Glades. Um, this is happening pretty secretly, secretively inside of immigration detention centers across the country. Um, this practice has been reported at least 22 times in different facilities. Um, that we know of. And again, that number can likely be much higher because this is so like secretive. Um, and what's really important to point out is that beyond this like current issue of chemical sprays during the pandemic, we can actually trace this environmental and honestly like racist violence throughout U.S. history and specifically like the connection with immigration. Um, one example that really comes up is in 1917 um, in El Paso, Texas, they had a literal chemical chamber stations at the border um, where emerging populations of people coming into the United States were forced into these stations and just like sprayed with pesticides and other chemicals. Um, and so really it was eugenics, right? This implementation of ideas that foreigners or really people of color, people who didn't look like us, um, carried diseases or carried, um, yeah, foreign antibodies, whatever it is that, that validated people to do this kind of policing of bodies, which again contributes to like the long history of the U.S. controlling and manipulating black and brown and indigenous people in, in the country.
it's not like the Europeans didn't bring their diseases and kill people off themselves. I'm like, bro. Right? Jeez Louise. Wow, that that's that's wild. I never knew about the chamber thing. That's that's insane. Um yeah, no, I think that's really, really important. We'll make sure to include links about that in like the reference of the show notes. Again, I think it goes back to this eco-fascist rhetoric. Like I think where we're seeing this pattern today, along with like obviously still anti-immigrant sentiment, is we're starting to hear specifically people who do believe in climate change, which is a good thing, but they scapegoat and blame, hey, but you know, this is why we need to be getting rid of these immigrants out of our country and deporting them and this is why they shouldn't be here and taking our resources when we know that is not the cause of the issue. Uh, and I, I, that is my biggest worry is that there's going to continue to be more people who are imprisoned and putting these detention centers and then discarded. And when it comes to things like floods and fires, like where are their protections? I mean, they're not even being protected right now. So what's going to happen um, when there is a natural disaster? Um, because we see even in times of natural disaster, like wildfires, um, people who are detained are the ones that are put to work, are putting their bodies on the line, um, to try to protect communities, but yet they don't receive those same kind of, you know, benefits in return. And so it's very, very wild to me how hypocritical the system is. But yeah, I wanted to know more about if you could talk to, you know, a little bit more like on your thoughts on why you feel like this population at Glades and you know people who are in these kind of conditions could be considered frontline communities when it comes to the climate crisis. I know I shared my thoughts on it but I'd love if, if you could weigh in anything on your thoughts about it. Yeah I mean I think we've definitely seen um, immigrant detention populations be at the front line of a lot of natural disasters as well like floods as you mentioned or, for example, in Texas, when there was that, like, ridiculous, um, like, freeze that it was, like, 70 degrees one day and then the following week it was, like, negative and there was, like, snow. Um, so, these, you know, these populations, for example, a lot of us, if those situations happen, we can get into our cars, drive to our family member who lives in another state or another county and be protected. Um, people inside of these detention centers don't have that luxury and don't have the privilege of leaving <laughs> similar to folks in the criminalizing system as well um so yeah they're they're specifically impacted not even by choice i guess like a lot of us have the choice to migrate or to move or to vacation to leave these um conditions to some degree and have the ability to sort of turn our attention away from it i think that's often actually why the climate crisis has just now started to like popularize and why people are talking about it even though like black and indigenous and communities of color have like literally always been talking about it but because now it's so front-facing people are like oh shit like I'm now affected by it and now I have to pay attention to it and people in detention and communities of color have always been on the front lines and have always had this threat um, so I absolutely agree that they're they're a community that's definitely affected yeah and you know, I wanted to talk more about um, back to Glades, like what what are you all doing to try to address um, that issue? I, I That was kind of how I first became acquainted with the work that you all were doing is because you do have a campaign. You're trying to help out the people in these detention centers um, with addressing this. And, you know, the point of the show is talking about solutions and re-envisioning a future for climate justice. And so I wanted to talk more about like 
How did that campaign emerge? What were some of the things that that went into that? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how how like detailed I can get because I wasn't the actual staff person who worked on on the campaign. But I do know that um, within our visitation group that's located within the facility, Immigrant Justice Alliance and other local groups in the area near Glades, like ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center, for example, they were all getting this like influx of reports of this happening. Um, and so the first, I think, thing to mention is that the courage and bravery of people inside detention are really what triggered this and that really uncovered it. Like none of us would have known if it wasn't for the people in detention who like came forward um, despite the odds and the potential retaliation and risk that they could face. So I really want to make sure that, that they get the credit they deserve for like how this has unfolded. And as a result of that, um, all of those organizations, like I mentioned, in, in addition to so many, um, did file a federal complaint, so civil rights and civil liberties complaint with the Department of Homeland Security, really outlining and having like first person testimony and attorneys weigh in. I mean, a super collaborative effort to publicize and uplift what was happening um, inside of this facility. And as a result of both that and just like years and years of pressure, <clears throat> the facility has also, um, I guess, taken a pause. I wouldn't say it's like officially closed down, but it has taken a pause, which um, is great. I mean, there's nobody detained anymore at Glades, and that's a win uh, for, for our movement and for our communities out that will hopefully be a step closer to, to ending all facilities. Wow. And I know that, um, you know, you all are still trying to keep the momentum for, up for that. So what are ways that, you know, people can continue to support that cause and support the work that you all are doing on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the Shutdown Glades campaign um, is a part of a, a, the Shutdown Glades Coalition, which is a coalition of both community members and local and national groups across the country. And like you said, we're in a pivotal moment where Glades is like, um, we want to shut it down for good. ICE recently announced that it would be like on pause and that the jail won't be used. So we're at like a critical critical moment to push the Biden administration to like fully terminate the contract. So you can definitely follow us on Instagram um, or on Twitter. It's at Migrant Freedom, all one word, to just get up to date on like what we're doing, any like calls to action that we have or any actions that are local, if especially you are in the Florida um, area. Um, I think other things is that you can also, like if you're not close to Florida and you still wanna get involved in our movement, there's so many lo amazing local and organizing groups across the country that are doing powerful, powerful abolitionist work. So connecting with them, um, you can go to our website. We have a list of visitation groups or you can follow groups like Detention Watch Network, which is a really amazing organization. Um, and on also things like if there isn't a group in your area, it's great. You can start one. You can get involved. You can rally people who are also probably thinking about the same things that you are. Um, and local power is so critical to our movement and so critical for solidarity for people inside detention. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the ways. And I think lastly, talking to your family and friends about immigration detention. I mean, I hope you all learned something today about what we talked about. But I think it's also important to like find these connections, right? There are probably issues that you are particularly passionate about. Maybe that be like gender issues, reproductive issues, environmental justice issues, and very likely they're all connected. And there are so many intersections that, that really connect it to immigration detention or are like 
industrial prison industrial complex. Um, so yeah, I mean, many people are really shocked to know that the U.S. detention system is operates one of the largest immigration detention systems in the world, and that we spend billions and billions of dollars to like literally detain human beings. So yeah, talk to people about it, share this video, like really just bring it up at you know, dinner conversations or on college campuses. I think the power of the youth especially is like so critical. So yeah, really harness that. And I think um, we have the ability to win. I think when we're connected and when our movements really see intersections, we are so much more powerful. And I think a function of white supremacy is also to like separate our movements, separate communities of color, pin us against each other saying like my movement is more important than yours when in reality if we join forces we are so much more powerful and we can definitely win together thank you so much and you know for people who are kind of new to abolition um and are new to that space could you also just you know to kind of move us into solutions and thinking about that could you tell us more about you know why do you think an abolitionist framework is so important when we're fighting for things like climate justice? And what are some books or resources you think are really valuable to get people to think about those intersections, if you have any, any suggestions in that category? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh my gosh, I feel like there's so many things that my brain is like thinking of. I think like <laughs> in a nutshell, like I think reform hasn't worked. Um, it has just proven to us, I mean, for years and generations that reforming these issues that are presented to us are not working. Like prison reform has not worked. Um, I'm sure like legislation for climate changes also haven't worked, right? Like reform isn't the solution here anymore. And I think more and more the conversation about abolition has been more open and more well received than ever before. And that's really the solution that we need. I mean, we're at a critical point both in our planet and like in our society where we have the ability to envision what the world could look like. I mean, I feel like I didn't really have that 10 years ago. I feel like now I'm in a moment where I'm like, yeah, I if I have kids, I don't want to raise them where prisons and jails exist or I want to live in a planet that's healthy and has clean air and water for me to drink. And that's a really radical act. We have the ability to radically think about what changes we can make. Um, and I think the youth more than ever are like the most radical right now, which I'm like so grateful for. But it's a journey. I mean, I, for myself, for example, I obviously wasn't born out of the womb an abolitionist. <laughs> like it's a process. And I know that people who are listening who are even like contemplating it, like it's very much a process and it's very much a learning experience throughout your life. And it's really important to recognize and honor the work of black and indigenous led groups who really were the foundation of abolition. Um, some of the books for me that were really crucial um, was We Do This Till We're Free by Marie May Kaba. I, we can link that. Um, or yeah, Abolition Feminism Now, Angela Davis. There's so many books that can really, Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. I feel like that's like a beautiful book that connects both like how we view the world and how we view people like very beautifully. Braiding Sweetgrass, I mean like all of these books that are like have the philosophy of abolition at its core um, have been really foundational for me. Um, and I'm also like totally down to start a book club. Like I have a book club with my friends that we read abolitionist literature. So if you're interested, like 
that's another great way like to rally people in your community and read a book and discuss it and grow together. Now, thank you so much. I think, you know, I think some people who may listen to this, um, this concept may be very new to them. They may have a lot of resistance. Again, it's like it requires a reframing of understanding like, you know, what does it mean to think about the humanity of people who are detained? Again, it's like also like how do we view um, you know, what is justice in this country? What does that mean to us? Our relationship with that, knowing that like it's not just a broad stroke. Um, and it's very complex, it's very complicated. And I think it's important though that while people hold maybe, you know, who people who may be listening to this, who maybe have resistance towards the concept of abolition, I think it's important to know that like at a baseline, these people are not being treated as human beings. They are not having their human rights met. And you should think about that. You should sit with that. You should question why Why do we allow this to happen? And if you and your body are like, well, they deserve it, I think you need to sit with that. You need to sit with why do you think that way? What is the conditioning that you've been told that make you think that he, other human beings deserve to live in X, Y, and Z conditions You know, when, when they're just trying to build a life in this country too, especially for immigrants? So I think anyone who listens to this who may feel resistant, I, I welcome you to ask questions and to engage the folks who are part of this organization with your questions um, because I'm sure they get them all the time. So yeah, I appreciate you just like creating the space for this conversation on my platform. I know it's going to get a lot of attention on all different sides um, and I, I'm grateful for it though. And I think this kind of discourse is important. We need to start having these conversations um, to start unpacking this. And like we were saying, we don't we don't live in silos. Our movements cannot be siloed anymore if we're going to continue to build um, build a movement that is building a world that not only is green but also is prioritizing the most vulnerable communities. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, and thank you everyone who listened in. This is Chrissy Drutman with Brown Girl Green. I interview environmental leaders and advocates about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, as well as creative and important solutions to the climate crisis. Make sure to follow Brown Girl Green, subscribe to the Brown Girl Green podcast, and we will put links below on how you can get involved with immigrant justice and abolition work if that is the way you want to take your climate activism moving forward. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your invaluable work on this platform and for all of your framework. I mean, it's just so inspiring and I'm so grateful for you and, and the space that we created today. Yay, thanks everyone.